Hi all, welcome to another episode of the Oxford Comment. I'm Estelle from New York's Publicity Department, and I'm so pleased to share this episode with you today. On the show, we have Sue Duran, author of Elizabeth I and Her Circle, chatting with playwright and screenwriter of shows like Boardwalk Empire and Smash, Bashapa Duran. Two very smart, sophisticated writers of very different genres who also happen to be mother and daughter. The two talk gender, Elizabeth I and her mother, dream casting, and writing process. I hope you're as charmed by this conversation as I was. Enjoy. Hello, I'm sitting here with Dr. Susan Doran, who's the Senior Research Fellow at Jesus College Oxford and a Tutorial Fellow at St. Bennett's Hall, Oxford, and also the author of the recent book, Elizabeth and Her Circle, uh, and she's also my mother. Um, I'm sitting with her at Oxford University Press uh, in a small, grey, but attractive room, and we're going to have a conversation. And I'm Sue Doran, Susan Doran, professionally called, and I'm being interviewed by my daughter, Bathsheba Doran, who is a playwright and a scriptwriter and writes also for television. Her most recent play, which was on at Lincoln Centre, is called The Mystery of Love and Sex. And she also had a recent play a couple of years ago called Kin. Hello. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well, thank you. So we're interviewing each other because we're both writers, mm-hmm. uh, also related. So I thought I'd start off by asking you about when you started to realise that your subject was going to be Elizabeth I and why. Okay, well when I was at university I was influenced by a book written by Lawrence Stone, called The Crisis of the Aristocracy. And it was a period um, that I didn't know very well. It was a period from about 1540 to 1640. And what I was influenced by was the fact that it was looking at a topic, the aristocracy, from a range of different perspectives. It was a holistic study, looking at art, looking at literature, looking at economics, uh, the social status of the aristocracy. And I thought, that's the kind of history I want to write. And the Elizabethan period struck me as being one that was exciting culturally and ideologically. And of course it had Elizabeth I, a monarch who um, was a woman uh, and who many people had written about, but I felt somehow hadn't done justice to. So I decided to write my doctoral thesis on a nobleman, an aristocrat, who was serving Elizabeth I. And from that I continued to work within the Elizabethan period. And when you think of yourself as a historian now, do you think of yourself as specify, uh, studying specifically Elizabeth, or is it sort of the Tudor period in general? Uh, so I see myself largely as a Tudor historian, but I'm being extremely adventurous um, <laughs> over the next few months, moving out of my comfort zone, and I plan to be writing a book that would take me into the next reign, the reign of James I. Oh, I didn't know that. That is that's kind of a significant branch out. It is, yes. It's it's very exciting. It's fresh, but at the same time, it's rather alarming since <laughs> the material that I'm using is, is is very new to me. What happened in the writing of this book that gave you new insight um, into Elizabeth? Okay, in some ways, I think this book is the culmination of more than 30 years' work that I've done on Elizabeth I. And it follows that model that I mentioned, the Lawrence Stone book, because what Uh I try to do in this book is introduce literature, art, poetry, as well as drama, and, of course, politics, in order to build up 
a picture of national political life um, surrounding Elizabeth I. Now, because I'm a playwright, so obviously my interest is, is very much in the arts, how, how, forgive me if this is a silly question, but how do you use literature as a historical source? What kind of insight does it does it give on the basis that, as I know uh, from first hand, it's, it's, it's you know, extremely subjective and according to its author? Yes, it's, it's extremely difficult to mm. use literature. One of the ways that we tend to use it is to try and understand some of the coded language. And we can only do that either by looking at the reception to the work, how it's been received. And in some cases, we actually do have some knowledge about how this piece of, of, of uh, theatre was uh -huh. received, for example. Or in some cases, we know how it was received as a poem because there was an answer to it. So is that, can you give me a good example? Of it? Well, uh, one example is the play Gorbaduke. Gorbaduke, right. Where I remember studying as an undergraduate, but I remember remarkably few specifics. So right. you can remind me. Well, it's a play that the reason you would have studied it is it's that it is, um, could, could be said to be the precursor of King Lear. It has right. a very similar story. Um, but what we have is a diary which is, it was written at the time of its um, first production at the Inner Temple. And we know how it, the person who wrote the diary saw the play, saw the political significance of the play. Mm -hmm. So that's one example of reception. It doesn't happen very often, mm -hmm. but when it does, it's extremely valuable. But in other cases, um, a lot of the poetry and some of the pageantry are eulogies superficially to the Queen. But again, if, with a very close reading, you can see that there are also criticisms of the Queen as well. So there's a lot of politics in the literature of, of the Elizabethan period. And literature, I would be right saying, had it had a more political role than it does now? Well, it depends who, yes. who you're well, thinking Well, there's, there's the entertainment, right? There's It always has to be entertaining. Right. For the Elizabethan period, it has to be pretty spectacular. Uh -huh. um, for many of the pageants, for example, they uh -huh. would uh, include very colourful costumes, right. scenery, masks. So there was quite a lot of spectacle associated But could you with lobby... Like through literature, like because you had an audience with the Queen if it was at court? It doesn't quite work that way. What you have are patrons uh -huh. of um, the drama or literature who would very often um, commission someone uh -huh. and we assume would give certain instructions about the kind of message that they want the author to get across. Sometimes <laughs> the author also is trying to get across the message that he is a great author and needs more and should be given more commissions. Interesting. What are, what are, what are the, the sort of big discoveries that happened along the way that changed your understanding of the Queen or of, of the period? Well, some of the ways in which I've understood the period comes from the historiography mm. that, and I owe a great deal to other people writing. Mm. So, for example, over the last 20 years or so, there has been a new gendered understanding of both um, the interactions that the Queen had with her courtiers, um, and there has been a, an understanding of the gendered way that Elizabeth wrote and that others wrote about her. And that has influenced the way that I have read a lot of the sources. Not that I see that um, gender is necessarily a key way 
of accessing the Queen and understanding her. But I think it's one of the approaches that has influenced me in questioning the sources. Now, there are some cases where I've actually found new material. Right. Um, for example, uh, when I went to the Huntington Library, I found this wonderful manuscript book, um, beautiful book, very richly um, painted. Um, there's a lot of gold and silver and reds and, and, and blues in this book. And it was a book that almost certainly was commissioned by the Earl of Leicester at the time when Elizabeth was putting him forward as a candidate to marry Mary Queen of Scots. Uh. And very often you will read that he didn't want to marry Mary Queen of Scots, that he had no interest in, in this at all because he saw his future as being um, a future husband of, of Elizabeth. Now, there is that truth, but mm. there is also the, the question mark that, is, that arises as a result of this book because what the book is doing is drawing a pedigree of Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, that makes him seem as if he is on a par with Mary Queen of Scots in terms of his his nobility, in terms of the relationships that he had through his family with, with other members of the royal family. And it's at a time when the issue is not about him marrying Queen Elizabeth, uh -huh. but about him marrying Mary Queen of Scots. Now tell me if, if I'm getting this right, but my my understanding of your contribution to the scholarship is sort of before Dr. Susan Doran came along, there was a generalised understanding that Elizabeth didn't marry in order to sort of solidify her power as a monarch and that you were the first historian uh, to really study uh, every marriage negotiation seriously and in in looking so closely at that text, you changed the received wisdom. Am I am I right on this? And, well, and, it, and it seemed like, as I understand it, you began a new narrative, which was that on a number of occasions Elizabeth did want to marry, and it's a less sort of sexy, easy story in a way. But those marriages were thwarted for various political reasons that were distinct each time. Yes, you're a great publicist, but what you're saying is basically true. Ah, that's, 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 not, right. that's not being a great yes. publicist. That's, that's just my, yes. my ability to, <laughs> to take a large <laughs> overview and be like, what's she done? Oh, something fantastic. And the other area where I think I've brought something to the table is the question of the succession. Uh -huh. um, in that I have demonstrated that it's, first of all, that Elizabeth's relationships with uh, people like uh, Catherine Gray, Mary Gray, her cousins, mm. are not influenced by sexual jealousy mm -hmm. in the way that they were described before and still are in quite a lot of popular literature, but are influenced by the question of the succession. And that the succession question is the dominant issue that doesn't end with the execution of Mary Queen of Scots, but goes right the way through the reign until James actually does come to the throne in 1603. I don't want to lead you somewhere you don't want to go, but it sounds to me uh, very gendered that people would, you know, when you, when, when you say things like, oh, people thought it was about jealousy, sexual jealousy, mm -hmm. that's, that seems such a sort of soap, soap operatic if I can say that, uh, way of describing relationships among uh, women as opposed to taking them uh, seriously as uh, political figureheads. I think you're absolutely right. And one of the ways that I think gender is crucial to our understanding of Elizabeth is, first of all, the way that contemporaries 
used gendered language uh -huh. when they described her. So, for example, she was often described as being indecisive, uh -huh. um, which might, if it were a man, be the word might be used cautious right. or circumspect. So the language that historians picked up on were words that were used by contemporaries which were themselves gendered. So that's one way. But then in, when historians started to write about Elizabeth, mm. and indeed when not just historians but biographers, popular biography, or when there were filmic representations of Elizabeth, uh -huh. they were all extremely gendered. Uh -huh. So she was seen as a woman who was, because she was in power, and this was very unusual, mm -hmm. that this was a woman who was not behaving like a woman. Uh -huh. This was uh, very much someone who was rational and cold and put aside all maternal thoughts, decided mm -hmm. not to marry, uh, which is the natural thing for a woman to do in order to, to hold on to power. And the contrast with her was uh, Mary Queen of Scots, who was seen as being very womanly, but therefore also extremely unsuccessful in political life. So, yes, you're absolutely right. I think that kind of gendered approach to Elizabeth despite the work of, of many very fine feminist writers, uh, I use the word writers, I should say scholars, mm. and they're not necessarily historians, despite their work, that has lived on in a lot of the writings, uh, the historical writings on Elizabeth, and I think I challenge that. Well, let, let's, let's use the, the kind of anecdote that only a daughter could know about a mother. So am I, I seem to have a memory of you being asked to be a consultant on the movie Elizabeth. The Helen Mirren. Um, was it the Helen Mirren? It wasn't the, the Cape, was it a Cape No, Blanchard? it wasn't the Cape Blanchard. Shakespeare in Love, yes. Yes. And um, also the Helen Mirren. My memory was that you, 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 are, uh, you wanted to be very specific. I um, like accuracy, uh -huh. unless there's a very good dramatic reason for there not to be accuracy. I can't see the point uh -huh. of making changes that move a long way away from the historical record uh -huh. um, for no at least for what I can't see as you a can, very good reason. Uh, my, my memory was that the phone stopped ringing a little bit. And I, I thought that was a great credit to you as a historian. Yes. I you, also, you, weren't, you weren't sort of no. <laughs> trying to jump ship and then climb the ladder of Hollywood. That's true enough, yeah. yes. So tell me about your writing practice, because you're a teacher, um, but you write an awful lot to the point that you know we, we, we have to call you a writer. What, how, do, how does it work? How do you balance the two? How much do you do a day? Well, let me put it this way. First of all, I write for different readers. Mm. So I write for my students, and there are books which are closer to being textbooks than anything else. Mm. I write for my peers. So I write scholarly articles um, as well as monograph. And I also write, as indeed this book is directed towards the, what you would call the general public. Mm -hmm. I like to write for people who are, have an interest in history, but not necessarily a great deal of knowledge, and they're not taking an exam. Um, but really, they just want to, to, to get into the period and, and understand more about, in this case, Elizabeth I. So I do three different types of writing. How do I spend my time? I need concentrated time to write. I know Bathsheba is a, is a multitasker as well and she often has more than one thing on the go and she can actually write a play spending two hours in the morning in a coffee shop um, over obviously a long period of time. I can't work that way. I have to have really concentrated ways of um, 
getting involved in my in my writing. So I set myself a task, if I can, of say a thousand words a day. Oh wow, old school. Tony Morrison style. Old school. And I always read aloud what I've written the day before Ooh. in order to move on. Really? To the next I didn't know work. that. Yes. We're learning a lot in this little room. You read your work aloud. I always read my work out aloud. And so the first part of the day is always going over the, the previous day's work and, and making changes. It's, well, the, it's not your... It's oh, I find looking at what I've written just absolutely excru excruciating. So I have to... I have to keep rereading it until I sense I've gotten it right. But once I have that vague sense, I just move on and pretend it never happened uh, until I'm forced to hear it out loud by actors. Well, that's also true for me because I've never read a book of mine once it's in print. I, it's, it's right. Over. I don't want to that's say That's true. I haven't read any of my plays once they're in print. Actually, I had a lovely story of talking of Toni Morrison. Uh, Toni Morrison told about how, you know, she had the same thing. She didn't read her books. And then one day recently, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, she picked up Beloved and just sat down and read it. And then she said, you know, it was really, it was really very good. <laughs> it was so lovely. It was such a lovely thing to say. Yeah. Well, let's hope that happens to me in the yes. previous time. <laughs> so if we go back to the idea of storytelling mm. and we and we bring in my uh, extensive knowledge of, of Hollywood. So what, what, what you'll, you'll learn in a pitch is, you know, you want to you want to zone in often on a relationship, on a central relationship. I'll be the producer, and you tell me all of the relationships, and then I'll tell you what actors we're going to get and what the movie's going to be. Okay. All right. Well, the first part of the book is on Elizabeth King. So, in fact, um, there have been quite a number of Hollywood representations of that because I oh, they'll love that. that. That's good. Been yeah. done before. I'm in. All right. Good. <laughs> so we start off with obviously Henry VIII. Uh -huh. And we have Elizabeth's relationships with her half-sibling, Edward, and Mary. And uh -huh. then I look also at how did Elizabeth feel about her mother? Uh -huh. um, oh. Even though, I mean, she won't have had any memories of her mother at all. And, and the usual... remind, r remind the ignorant of, among us, not me, why she has no memories of her mother. Well, Anne Boleyn right. was Henry II, Henry's second wife. And she um, she was executed when Elizabeth was, was three, three, oh, so yeah. three, just under three actually. Uh -huh. um, and so Elizabeth would only have been told stories about mm -hmm. why Anne died. And what I look at is how Anne Boleyn is represented in Elizabeth's reign, not only by the Queen herself but also by people around the Queen. So, for example, virtually all the portraits that we have of Anne Boleyn were not produced in Henry VIII's reign. They would have been destroyed. They were actually Elizabethan. So mm. what you have is that people are putting up in their long galleries uh, portraits of Anne Boleyn, presumably because they think this is going to be something that the Queen will approve of and notice when she comes to their houses and to their long galleries. So there's an assumption that she's... Isn't that kind of an assumption she sided with her mother? I mean, how did well, this work? Well, it is very difficult. Right. How, do you, how do you manage to represent Anne Boleyn in a positive way without casting aspersions on, on her father? And what they tended to do in, in chronicles written at the time and, and representatives of representations of Anne Boleyn was to blame other people for giving Henry the wrong account of ah. what um, Anne was up to for their own particular purposes. Uh -huh. So Anne Boleyn is cast 
in some writings of the time as a kind of proto-Protestant who was trying to push Henry uh, down the road to Protestant reform mm. and those people who were opposed to that reform were trying to cast her as an adulteress and a mm. monster and a witch and were successfully able to bring about her, her execution. Is Elizabeth on record as talking about either her mother or her father? Not in um, any private sense. Uh, and as far as her father is concerned, there are public occasions when she talks about herself as her father's daughter um, and her mm. pride in her father. But then, of course, she needed to do that because there were aspersions uh, on her that she was not Henry VIII's daughter at all, that she was the daughter of one of Anne Boleyn's lovers, the commoner Mark Smeaton, who was a musician. Uh. So we don't know how Elizabeth felt about her mother and her father. All we do know is that she didn't hide Anne Boleyn away in a closet um, mm. as someone not to be talked about. She was prepared and ready to have Anne Boleyn out there as the mother, um, who was Henry VIII's true wife, and anyone who who, who said otherwise um, was was you know guilty of, of not treason, but nevertheless uh, would not be considered welcome at court. Right, deeply at the very right. yes, at the very least. Now, I mean, it's it's obviously pop psychology, but if you're building a psychological profile of a character, I'm still in my Hollywood pitch. You know, the fact that their father murdered their mother, that sense of sort of, uh, that it would have a huge psychological ramification is A, a sort of contemporary interpretation, B, something that's just for, that for royals is just, you just have a different uh, emotional set of wheels. And okay. see the English have a different emotional set of rules. Well, the first thing is, I'm a historian, right. so I have to go by the evidence. Right. I can, you know, make as much speculation as I like, but mm -hmm. ultimately, I have to make it absolutely clear where the evidence takes us. Mm -hmm. And the evidence takes us in a number of directions. The first is that Anne and Elizabeth did not really have a relationship that's modern in any sense. Mm -hmm. um, there were wet nurses. Um, she was immediately given um, a form of, of governors. She was given rockers who mm. rocked the cradle. Mm -hmm. um, so Elizabeth didn't have a relationship that was somehow torn asunder mm -hmm. by the execution. So that kind of emotional break, um, I don't think, is, is something that we can say existed. Mothers frequently died. Right. What was unusual, of course, was that this was an execution. Mm. Um, and we don't know when Elizabeth was told that her mother was executed, so we mm. can't know what her reaction to it was. Mm. We have small pieces of evidence that would lead us to, to guess that her relationship with her father mm. was one, I would argue, that was based on fear ah, rather excellent. than love. Um, but... You know, I can't, I can't be um, too assertive about that because mm. the evidence is, is so slight and it could be read in a different way. Interesting. Father-daughter relationship. Conflict. Sounds good. Well, the conflict, well, me... the other big conflict, of course, was between Elizabeth and Mary. And Ooh. there the conflict was personal, political and religious. Sold. Sold in the room. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> Well, the, obviously, um, Mary, as the, the daughter, 
of the woman who Anne Boleyn supplanted um, didn't have a very positive, loving feelings about Anne Boleyn's daughter. And it was made worse by the fact that when Elizabeth was a baby, Mary was demoted from being a princess um, who was legitimate to being simply a lady who had no place in the succession and who was in law a bastard. And that Elizabeth, for a short time at any rate, until Anne Boleyn's execution, was the true princess, mm. the next in line to the throne. And Mary had to wait on her sister, um, show deference to her sister. Her sister had precedence, this baby had precedence over her. This was not really likely to create a, a warm bond between the two. <laughs> and it became worse even after um, Elizabeth was... Um, was also demoted because of Anne Boleyn's execution. She also was bastardised. So they, that put them on an equal level, but it became increasingly obvious, particularly during the reign of Edward VI, their, both of their, um, the, the half-brother of both of them, mm. that Elizabeth was a Protestant mm. and that Mary was moving away from even the Henrician form of Catholicism to wanting to go back to Rome and being a very committed Catholic. And because Mary did not have a child mm. at that point, even after she'd married Philip II, Philip of Spain, um, the, the big fear that Mary had was that Elizabeth, a Protestant, would succeed on the throne and that therefore her legacy of returning England to Rome to the true religion would 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 be destroyed on her death. Mm. And so we, we see Mary again and again trying to disinherit um, Elizabeth. At one point, Elizabeth is put in the tower. She's yeah. accused of being um, supporting a rebellion against Mary. So Elizabeth's life is in, in danger. So the relationship between the two sisters is fraught. Okay. Um, it's good, but two women leads... I don't know. I don't know how it's going to do in the marketplace. So let me ask you. Let me ask you. Love. So is was what is the evidence? Well, I do think um, that Elizabeth showed every sign of being in love with Robert Dudley. Let me stop you right there and ask you this important question: When was Robert Dudley's wife? When on what date did she fall down those stairs? She fell down those stairs on the day after. Elizabeth's birthday. What do you make of that? Well, I have thought for a long time <laughs> that um, Amy, Lady Dudley, was um, what, what committed suicide. Other people think that she um, was murdered. Mm. Some um, doctor thought that she had cancer of the breast and her bones sort of crumbled and collapsed, mm. so she fell down the stairs and died in that way. But it seems to me that there is quite a lot of evidence that she was depressed. Mm. Um, the date may be significant mm -hmm. when, uh, when she died, that her husband had been at court for a year. Everybody knew there was great celebrations on the Queen's birthday. So, but Dudley, the love, maybe. So what, what is the evidence? Well, everybody thought they were in love. Um, that's, that's so nice. The, you know, it was. They couldn't. Hurt. They didn't think. The, the, the observers didn't think it was nice. They thought that it was mm -hmm. extremely dangerous for the queen uh, to be showing such favour. Mm -hmm. They thought she was being indiscreet. Mm -hmm. They thought that they, they provided meat for the grist of the dangers of having a woman on the throne. 
Well, tell me this, just going back to gender. Did people get uh, so uh, concerned when Henry VIII took a fancy to someone, or was it a bigger deal because cause she was a lady? I think being a woman did make it more problematic mm. um, because her reputation was, was at stake. Her reputation as a chaste woman mm. um, could be endangered, which would do her a great deal of harm. Um, what, is, what, what do you know was so good about Dudley? Like, do we, what sense of Elizabeth do we get from her choice of, of ideal man? Because she, she could have had a pick. Well, she couldn't, she couldn't. Yes. Yeah. Well, Robert Dudley, um, I think, was sexually attractive. Okay. At the same time, he was extremely cultured. He was intellectual. He was a, a very good horseman. Okay. Uh, and they rode together, and That's he good. actually taught her to, to hunt. I think he was physically attractive. He enjoyed the same sorts of things as she did. He enjoyed uh, hunting, riding, dancing, reading, uh, and gambling. Interesting. Gambling? Yeah, they played cards together. <laughs> yes. Not for money, though, surely. I think... Maybe. Probably. The odd jewel yeah. <laughs> on the table. I see. I'm trying to, I was trying to think of actors that were so to, to help get, get specific about him. I was like, is he more Brad Pitt? Or Ben Affleck, but then I really couldn't. neither. That's I what I say. thought. I was but like, I, I'm not. I'm not getting it right. Um, who's the guy that played James? The, the the James Bond, the new James Bond. Daniel Craig. No, no, no. Anyone? I'll What's think wrong about with it. those people? Is it that they're too? I don't think they're intellectual. They're enough. not intellectual. No, I think he was extremely cultured. He was. He had a a, a much more no no ability about. It seems obvious to go for Colin Firth. Colin Firth wouldn't be bad. Yeah. A young Colin Firth. A young Colin Firth. <laughs> think, think young Colin Firth. Think Pride and Prejudice. Okay, <laughs> fantastic. What about James the, the James the First, the man who would become James the First? Mm -hmm. That seems like an interesting... Well, the two never, of course, met. Elizabeth mm -hmm. never met James It'd be like the, the movie Heat. Scotland. They can have one rushed telephone conversation. <laughs> <laughs> go on, go on. Well, you could have see them with with plumes writing to each yeah, other. Yeah, there you go. Because they did write very strongly worded letters on several occasions, particularly uh -huh. um, after the, the death of, of Mary, Queen of Scots, when James is trying to get Elizabeth to name him heir. And Elizabeth is trying to get James to be a good ally during the war that she was experiencing against Spain. And neither were terribly successful mm -hmm. in that relationship. <laughs> so what are the examples that make you like Elizabeth so much? Because I have noticed that you like her very, very much. Yes. No, I don't see her passive. I mean, she does make a decision not to marry the men that she, in other circumstances, would mm -hmm. have chosen to marry. And she decides not to marry them because she recognises that they, they would create so much opposition that it might endanger her own position on the throne. And she's a very pragmatic individual, and that's one of the things I like about her, that she um, is no ideologue. She is someone who thinks about um, particular circumstances at the time. She has some long-term ambitions, um, and she works, she works around them. So I, why do I spend my time with her? I think it's partly not just Elizabeth that I'm interested in, mm. but it's partly the world in which she inhabits. Right. 
It's a world of tremendous danger, of a world where there's a tremendous amount of cultural excitement. It's a world of religious intensity and division. And it's how she operates within that world, I think, that I find fascinating. And that's it for this episode of the Oxford Comment. Thanks for tuning in, and a massive thanks, of course, to Sue and Bash for stopping by the OUP office for this chat. Sue's book, Elizabeth I and Her Circle, which examines Elizabeth's closest relationships, is available everywhere now. For more of the Oxford Comment, check out iTunes, SoundCloud, and the OUP blog.